Hello and welcome to the Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trusts Handbook, and your host for this weekly look at all things to do with investment trusts. We are an independent organization, but to save the regulators from doing so, please let me remind you that this podcast is provided for information and educational purposes only, and nothing you hear from any of the speakers today should be regarded as constituting investment advice. Perish the thought. This week, in addition to reviewing the week's most important news and announcements from the investment trust sector, I'm joined to discuss the market outlook by Duncan McInnes, manager of the Ruffer Investment Company, ticker RICA. A lot has happened since Duncan was last on the show back in October, just as the trust government was going into meltdown. And while Ruffer has continued to plough a profitable path all the way through the current bear market, it's a chance to hear how he and his colleagues think the markets may go from here in both the short and the longer term. In the markets, it's been another quietly positive week with equity markets edging up, bond yields continuing to range within a sideways band, and an absence of huge moves in the currency and commodity markets. Many equity indices are showing positive technical features, however, pushing through their 200-day moving averages, which is a potentially bullish trading signal. The Investment Trust Index we track, which records the performance of the 190-odd trusts which feature in the FTSE All Share Index, has gained 2.7% since the start of the year, a couple of percentage points behind the UK and global market indices. In terms of sectors, the Chinese trust continues to lead the way following the end of the country's most severe lockdown measures, with the larger Chinese trust up some 20% in share price terms year-to-date, and the Asia-Pacific sector up a little over 12%, followed by more modest gains for the Europe, global and UK subsectors. Turning to alternative assets, uh, private equity, infrastructure and commercial property have all edged up just over 1% since the start of the year. Uh, The average discount across the investment trust universe remains more or less exactly where it started the year at a touch over 13%. Uh, One notable phenomenon this week was seeing the NAVs of commercial property trusts continuing to decline, but their discounts narrowing in several cases. Maybe we've seen something of a turning point there as well. Turning to the Investment Trust news this week, we're starting to see a greater number of results and NAV updates reported as we move further into the new year. As always, you can find a comprehensive summary of all the week's announcements by Investment Trusts on the Moneymakers Circle website, accompanied by links through to the relevant stock exchange announcements. We also track the largest share price NAV and discount moves of the week. Also this week, we have an in-depth profile of Foresight Sustainable Forestry, ticker FSF, and the first of my reviews of the four Moneymakers model portfolios that I track, and where I've made some extensive changes in accordance with my belief that we are most likely entering a new investment regime, where what has worked well since the global financial crisis will probably no longer work as well and requires a different approach. Among the highlights in the Investment Trust news, I would mention our strong and positive December 31st NAV updates from three private equity trusts, 3i, ticker III, Literacy Capital, ticker Book, B-O-O-K, and Oakley Capital Investments, ticker OCI. Although always remember that these will not be audited and confirmed until their results appear in due course, and some of the valuations may not be fully up to date, but reflect earlier quarter endpoints. 
Tritax Big Box, meanwhile, confirmed a like-for-like 15% decline in valuations over the course of 2022, which helps to explain its recent dramatic share price decline and de-rating. There were interim results from Invesco Asia, ticker IAT, which outperformed its benchmark by 2%, despite reducing an NAV total return of minus 13% for the year to October 22. Peter Hewitt's CT Global Managed Portfolio, where the NAV total return was minus 3.7% for its growth share class and minus 5.4% for the income share class, both a little disappointing against the FTSE All Share Benchmark's flat performance for the period to the end of November. And Henderson Smaller Companies, uh, ticker HSL, where the NAV total return was minus 11.5%, 5% worse than its UK benchmark. Edinburgh Worldwide, ticker EWI, the Global Smaller Companies Trust, reported a startling and uh, a rather unfortunate NAV total return of minus 40%. Uh, in a year when the S&P value index, which it uses as a benchmark, was down just 6.8%. Also on the news front, we heard confirmation that BH Macro is looking to capitalise on its strong performance and recent double-digit premium to raise significant amounts of new equity from replacing a programme given shareholder approval. Home Reek, the troubled homes for the homeless trust, whose shares remain suspended while its annual results are being audited, confirmed that another tenant had not paid its rent in the latter part of last year and said it now has 25% of its rent roll in arrears. On a more positive note, Nick Train, the manager of Finsbury Growth and Income, meanwhile confirmed his confidence in the outlook of the trust by buying £450,000 worth of new shares at £8.61 a share. While finally, Blackstone Loan Financing, ticker BGLF, said it was consulting with its shareholders about providing a possible exit opportunity following a persistent heavy discount, currently around 18%. So it was a pleasure to catch up this week with uh, Duncan McInnes, the manager of the Ruffer Investment Company, where he's been the manager since uh, 2016. We've just lived through a year, which has been a pretty tough one for investors, a one to forget, really, in which a number of records are broken, not all of them in a good way, or very few of them in a good way, it has to be said, both uh, equities and bonds delivering uh, double-digit negative returns over the year. And most wealth managers and anybody with a traditional 60-40 equity bond portfolio was uh, heavily underwater. But uh, the Ruffer Investment Company, in keeping with its mandate, actually delivered a positive return, an NAV total return of 8% over the course of the year which uh, makes it stand out amongst most of its peers, both in its sector, the flexible investment sector, and in the investment trust sector as a whole. Duncan, first of all, well, let's get the congratulations out of the way. It was a very good year for you. What do you attribute it to? Well, thank you for having me back, uh, Jonathan. I obviously didn't do too terrible a job last time. Yes, it was a tough year, as we all now know. There was nowhere to hide. That's the way that we sort of described it in the middle of the year, and the whole year looked like that. You had very high cross-asset correlations. It was a fancy phrase for everything moving in the same direction. Nobody complains about that when everything's going up. (laughs) But when everything's going down, it it was very uncomfortable. You had three consecutive quarters of stocks and bonds falling at the same time. It was a painful year for everything in conventional assets, apart from really the US dollar, which was the biggest contributor for most uh, traditional portfolios. For Ruffer, in the context where conventional assets struggled, 
It was the unconventional assets that we have been telling people about for quite a few years, but yet again, were the driver of our relative outperformance. And this is really the same bit of the portfolio that saved our bacon in 2020, that uh, helped our performance in 2021, and then was the main contributor last year. So the biggest single part of that that helped our performance was interest rate options. So these were options that rise in value when bond yields go up. Of course, bond yields and interest rates went up lots last year, and we were using these as a hedge in the portfolio because we thought interest rates were going up, but also because we had some bonds in the portfolio that we wanted to make sure we could hold through what we thought would be a difficult period. Second biggest positive contributor was equity put options. Now, we've got a little bit more sophisticated in the way that we use these in the last few years. If you go back a decade, when we first started using them, it was pretty simple stuff. S&P puts, MSCI world puts, and they're effective, but they're not very efficient. They're quite a blunt tool. They can be expensive. And so we've, over the years, become a little more sophisticated and we can be more targeted. So at the start of the year, we were short profitless tech. And then in February, we were short European banks and European indexes. And then later in the year, big tech, things like Tesla, Microsoft, Apple, and so on. And then lastly, probably on the unconventional side, credit protections were another big contributor. Uh, Both equity protections and credit protections added about 3% each. These are bets that corporate borrowing costs would widen. So if you go back to the start of 2022, which feels like a long, long time ago, the high yield bond index was trading at a yield of four, which is not a very high yield, ironically. So uh, we thought that was just the wrong price. And as markets encountered stress over the course of the year, those spreads widened, and and so we made money being short there. So to be clear, you've been on record, or Ruff has been on record for a long time, expecting some kind of inflationary problem to arise. 2022 was the year in which that problem did arise, even though we entered it with the Federal Reserve just having acknowledged that its uh, claim that inflation was going to be transitory was actually wrong. So you were expecting some of this, but of course, presumably you weren't able to predict the timing of it precisely, which is why you have this protection in place. But did you actually expect to see things move quite as dramatically as they did in response to the inflationary shock that uh, everybody has been experiencing in Western countries, at least? Yeah, good, good question. So I think we were very explicit that we thought the Fed was wrong, saying that, that inflation was transitory. And we, we've written lots of stuff about our belief that we've transitioned into a new, more inflationary regime. I think there's a range of views internally. Some people probably did expect the extent of inflation that we saw, others less so. But of course, inflation hit 40-year realized highs, so it really did surprise massively on the upside. Yes, above the very sanguine expectations of central banks, but even above the expectations of some people who thought that inflation would return. And I suppose, actually, it, it is worth highlighting we didn't get everything right last year. One of the things that that cost us, ironically, were two of the assets that you would expect to do well in an inflationary environment. So gold was a bit of a damp squib. You know, gold priced in sterling was was okay because sterling was down so much, but gold in dollars was was pretty flat and uh, didn't really do much for you. And of course, the big one was inflation-linked bonds. So I've sort of joked that if you went back to the start of 2022 and you had perfect foresight about all the inflationary events that would happen and you went and bought the inflation portfolio of gold, inflation-linked bonds, oil, maybe some property, you'd have lost money. 
I was just showed what a difficult year it was and, and really how the starting point matters. And the reason that inflation-linked bonds were so poor last year, and it amazes people when you tell them that the 2073 inflation-linked gilt was down 70%, more than Bitcoin, <laughs> over the course of the calendar year, that it was because these are highly sensitive to interest rates too. So the interest rate sensitivity prompt the inflation protection or the inflation sensitivity. And the longer the duration, as we call it, the longer the maturity of the the bonds you're investing in, the bigger that impact tends to be. And it was at the long end that you really got the massive sell-offs, particularly in the UK, of course. I mean, last time we spoke, I think we were still in the throes of what uh, has now passed into history, the the Truss administration, or lack of administration, perhaps we should call it. And that was obviously particularly meant that UK index link uh, gilts were particularly hard hit and... uh, some of them came all the way back down to par, I believe, uh, in the process. But you did manage to uh, trade away around that a bit, at least. Yes. So, so that's the silver lining. So, so the biggest negative contributor to our portfolio for the year was our holding in the inflation-linked bonds. Um, we did have the the benefit of that big protection, the interest rate hedge that I mentioned. Also, because we had moved the portfolio to such a defensive, liquid positioning in the middle of the year, we had a lot of cash on hand to be opportunistic in the middle of the trust quarting budget debacle, whatever whatever you want to call it, where there were some really extreme moves on the day. So I'm going to get the number slightly wrong, but roughly the bonds were down 20% on the Monday, 24% on the Tuesday, and 20% on the Wednesday morning of, of that week <laughs> that the Bank of England had to intervene. And we were buyers that, that, that week and, and now. From today, those prices look extremely attractive. The, the bonds have more than doubled since then. Indeed. And that, I think, was we caught you just in the process of your doing that. And that was a remarkable uh, interlude, as we say. You said there wasn't anywhere really to hide except the dollar to some extent. Uh, but also, there was a time where for much of the year, you could have made money out of energy, out of oil and gas. So obviously, those have sold off in the last few weeks and so on. You did have some exposure to that, I think, through uh, equities, but your equity portfolio overall is way down at very low levels. I think you mentioned in your annual review that it's down to around 13% or something like that. Could you have done more? I mean, it's, 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 it's- Yes, energy has been the biggest weighting in our, in our equity portfolio since, I think, about early 2021. And they've been, they've been a holding uh, further back than that. So we we had some energy exposure last year. It, it helped. Um, in fact, we actually we made money in equities over the course of twenty twenty two, which is pretty rare, purely because we had more equities at the start of the year. When, if you remember, interest rates and inflation were going up for good reasons before the war. We had the right sort of equities, particularly energy, as I mentioned, and then we had less in equities when markets were weaker later in the year. Today, we're still pretty defensively positioned. As of right now, it's about 15, 16% in equities with a little bit of option offset, bringing that down to maybe 10% net exposure. We still think energy is really very interesting. But actually, as well as owning energy equities, so things like BP, Shell, Chesapeake, Exxon, so on, which we've held for a couple of years, we have in Q4 last year been adding to oil directly via an exchange-traded commodity. Now, that's the first time we've really done that. We've held a gold ETF in the past, as, as many investors do, but this this new venture into holding oil via the ETC is an interesting one because it's a different way of expressing that same uh, positive view on oil prices. And there's a couple of reasons why we've decided that's superior. So at the turn of the year, which is the date to the report, we had about 3% in this oil position. Today, it's, it's closer to 5 
So the first thing is that because of the shape of the futures curve, there have been points in the last year or so where you can be paid to own these. Now, normally, these ETCs are very unattractive because they come with a with an expensive cost of carry for lots of boring finance reasons. But usually, a futures curve is upward sloping. And so if you own the future, then you roll down towards the spot price and that can cost you money. Well, in recent times, actually, futures have been below spot because the oil market's very tight as a result of supply constraints in Russia. So actually, it comes with a positive carry, which is a little bit like a sort of dividend yield, which is nice. But the other reason why I think you want exposure to the spot commodity rather than the companies is that many of the reasons that are the bear case for the equities are very bullish for oil. Specifically, I'm thinking windfall taxes. Windfall taxes are going to constrain supply. They're going to make energy companies less willing to put capital into the ground to grow production. And of course, the the perennial bear case for the oil stocks, ESG, similarly is a constraint on supply. So these factors, which actually prevent people from buying the equities, prevent the companies from investing, should be very bullish for the oil price itself. So I would say that the oil exposure is probably the single biggest risk factor that we've got on in the portfolio at the moment. So far this year, we've seen the price of oil futures move upwards, which is good for you, of course. But it's worth making the point that uh, presumably you're only going to maintain this position as long as the curve and the differentials are. Yes, yeah, yeah. So I should probably revealing my own ignorance here. But back in 2009, when I was a young whippersnapper, just started in the industry, it was the financial crisis, of course. I think oil was about 30 bucks. And I had read a book about this this theory called peak oil. So I bought an exchange-traded commodity oil fund. So I bought it at 30 bucks and oil went to 100 bucks. And you, I thought, oh, I've made a huge amount of money here. And I looked at it and I'd actually only made 30 or 40% because this roll yield had absolutely killed me. It had eaten all my returns. So first lesson is never invest in something that you don't understand. <laughs> and I learned that lesson well then. But secondly, yeah, we will not be expressing this investment that way if the shape of the futures curve changes. Right. But it's still possible you could have a positive view about oil and about energy, even if yes. Yeah, so I think the energy equity, even if the role changes, acceptable yeah. way to play it. They're still they're still cheap, but they have recently outperformed the commodity quite significantly. Yeah. Okay, so this brings us back to a more general point about, I guess, what your selling point is, Rafa, is, which is you are mainly doing things that certainly private investors themselves would find very difficult to do. They have to understand first of all the kind of complex uh, derivatives you're using in both in credit and in energy and in uh, equities and so on. So that's part of your selling point to the general investor, at least. And you do, I think, fair to say, you make a comment in your annual review that you ask yourself the question, well, are we being too clever by half? Which is, of course, the kind of criticism you might get. But uh, how do you answer people who say that? I mean, you say all the time, things you're saying are more subtle, more sophisticated, than the average kind of commentary you're getting from uh, I'm glad you wealth managers. Up on that. So, so the context in which I asked ourselves that question, are we trying to be too clever, is because look, we have a very strong conviction that the world is now more inflationary than it was pre-COVID for lots of structural reasons, very briefly summarised as the sort of, if the previous regime was supported by cheap energy, cheap goods, cheap labour, and cheap capital, you know, low interest rates, then all of those trends are going into reverse. And so we, on a structural sort of decade view, so we think we've moved into this more inflationary world. 
However, the inflationary journey will not be a straight line. And this year in particular, 2023, we think we're going to be experiencing, I think I called it a disinflationary lurch. So that's the economy moves into recession, inflation numbers come down. And at some point in the middle of the year, I'm sure you'll get the people who told you that inflation was transitory two years ago saying, see, I told you so. Now, what we are trying to do at Ruffer is we are trying to navigate those oscillations the inflationary lurches and the disinflationary lurches, whilst all the time remembering that we are on an inflationary journey. So you never want to get too far away from that sort of base portfolio, which is pretty well protected against inflation. But you do want to be cognizant that the journey will meander somewhat. So that that's what I'm getting at when I say, are we trying to be too clever? Because right now, we are positioned mostly for recession, for inflation coming down. And I think that the way that I phrased it in the report was that there's a bit of cognitive dissonance going on in the portfolio because the portfolio that you want for the coming decade is quite different to the portfolio that you want for the coming six to nine months. And so that implicitly means that at some point you're going to have to rotate the portfolio. You're going to have to buy more gold. You're going to have to buy more equities, more inflation-linked bonds and so on. And so you are a little bit trying to be clever with the timing and trying to get better prices. So I wrote that as much to remind myself <laughs> as well as shareholders that we are trying to be clever, but hopefully not too clever. Right. So in other words, as you've just said, going back to your kind of original comment about the things that didn't happen when we got inflation, uh, it still remains the case that over the sort of medium longer term, you would be looking towards things that generally do well in inflationary environments. So, yes. Yeah, so I, th I think. Yes, at some point, the rough roadmap, I think that if last year was a year of inflationary pain and then governments and, and policymakers having to do something to fix the pain that the man on the street was feeling with the cost of living crisis, most of that was raising interest rates, then this year, I think it will be economic pain. And the economic pain will increase as we move into recession until, again, it reaches a level of acuteness and governments have to do something about it. So that's when the monetary and fiscal policy stimulus comes back, when the economic pain gets too great. And that's the moment when the central banks are cutting interest rates, when they're going back to quantitative easing, when the government's launching another Build Back Better, Green New Deal, levelling up type stimulus programmes, when they're both pushing the accelerator on those big sort of policies, that's when you want to go back to buying, we think, commodity equities, industrial equities, gold, or at least having those in bigger size. They're all in the portfolio today, but they're not in huge positions. But I think in that world, you would want them to be bigger. So in other words, you're saying basically that people who think that there's going to be a, what we you know, abbreviated call a soft landing are probably going to be disappointed. There may be something that looks a bit like a soft landing for about a month or two, but actually the underlying pressures will be there for governments and central banks to start doing the kind of things that will mean it's not such a soft landing after all. Soft landings historically are vanishingly rare. <laughs> so the um, most Fed hiking cycles, so periods where they're raising rates, end in a market crash, a recession, or both. It's really not very common that they can raise interest rates enough to achieve their objectives, but without damaging the economy. And also, most recessions 
as we lead up to them, Wall Street tells you it's going to be a soft landing. I mean, you've been around a long time. <laughs> I'm sure you're familiar with that pattern. It's going to be a soft landing. It's going to be a soft landing. And then it ends up a little bit bumpier than everyone expected. So it is, of course, possible that they can achieve the soft landing. And one of the big differences in this cycle is that the nominal growth rate is higher. So it's possible we can have a real recession without a nominal recession. And that that would probably feel a little like a soft landing, or at least the chances of a soft landing in that regard are higher. So I'm not ruling it out completely. I'm just saying it's the sort of triumph of hope over experience. Yes. And of course, a lot of people, including those who are trying to flog shares and so on, on Wall Street and elsewhere, they tend to say, well, look at these indicators, which are actually lagging indicators like employment in particular, and saying, well, look, we haven't seen any signs of, you know, even you get someone like Janet Yellen, the US Treasury Secretary, well, look, how can the economy be doing badly when we've still got all these people in work? But that's not normally how it works, is it? And if it is how it works, what we still haven't factored in is what's going to happen to company earnings. I mean, Wall Street analysts are still saying earnings are going to go up next year. They're not by much. They'll be down in the first two quarters, but then up after that over the year as a whole. But that's not really what history suggests will happen. History suggests that they will prove to be optimistic. Would you not agree? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yes. So they always prove optimistic and they prove particularly optimistic at turning points, i.e. when you move from growth into a recession. So we are very worried about corporate earnings, mostly because, as you say, they are forecast to grow, I think, about four or five percent over the course of the year from where we are today. Now, remember, last year, energy earnings were a huge uh, impetus to the S&P. Now, actually, energy earnings will be lower than last year because the oil price is 80 bucks, not not 100 bucks. So there's a, there's a bit of a headwind there from energy. But also, these companies are trying to grow earnings in an environment where the economy is maybe recessionary or might be in recession, but labor costs are still going up. And of course, their financing costs are going up dramatically because they're rolling their debt from sort of 2% rates to 6% rates. So they've got these big headwinds that we think are going to be problematic for them. And the other angle, which I haven't seen covered much, is that profit margins are exceptionally elevated. Now, the reason that they're exceptionally elevated is because of COVID disruptions. So COVID allowed an awful lot of companies to price aggressively, shall we say, you know, there's a phrase, uh, one man's pricing power is another man's inflation, which I think is quite a good summary for what's happened in the last couple of years. So because supply chains were so disrupted, companies got to raise their prices and um, most people were price takers. Well, if supply chain disruptions are going away, you know, China is reopening, supply chains are going to unlock, that's the disinflationary narrative that many people are spinning as a positive story for 2023, then you also have to say, well, wait a minute, maybe the super normal profits that companies have been making because of the COVID period also have to go away. (laughs) And that could be a pretty negative shock, actually, for US earnings. And then, of course, the last piece of the earnings puzzle is we've done some work, I think the chart is in the reports, about the correlation between earnings and payrolls. Now, we know that the Fed is determined to slow inflation by um, creating some slack in the labour market. And what we chart is that when payrolls fall, which is the unemployment rate going up, and it's likely to go up from pretty much all-time lows today, then corporate earnings always fall. There are no examples of that, of unemployment rising since the 40s without 
corporate earnings being hurt. So there's there's a lot of as a sort of general trend, I would say have your cake and eat it in the market at the, at the moment. There's a bunch of examples really, whether that's the idea that we can have corporate earnings strength and inflation going away, or whether that's China reopening and low energy prices, or whether it's we can have a soft landing and the Fed will cut interest rates. I don't think we can have all these things at the same time. Uh, nice to have that they might be. Indeed, one has to be realistic. How are you therefore going to be navigating? You say the, the challenge is to navigate these choppy waters when inflation coming and going and lots of volatility in those measures. What indicators will you be looking at that will actually allow you to decide when you've reached the turning point or if there is a turning point about inflation? Well, the big one that everyone is waiting for is what the Fed does. Maybe we can come back to that because I think the gap between the market and the Fed is probably the most important thing at the moment in 2023. So everyone's waiting to see when the Fed pivots, but then you also have the liquidity picture. So, so QT is ongoing. Those are key. The China reopening, which at the moment, most people are perceiving to be a positive event. I mean, of course, it is a positive impetus for global GDP, but we would just say, look, let's not underestimate how potentially chaotic this could be too, because they have a much less vaccinated population. And what China has done over the last few years is sacrifice its service economy to protect its goods economy. So everyone was locked down, but the factories kept working. Well, now everyone isn't locked down. And if it's anything like the experience in the West, you'll go through quite a long period where it's very hard to get staff because everyone's off work with Omicron or something like that. So we'll be monitoring the China reopening story to see if it's going to be quite as smooth as people would suggest. And then I think the last thing that would be a catalyst for a major change in our positioning would, of course, be pricing. So right now, I think the outlook is relatively gloomy, but the prices are relatively optimistic still. If the outlook was relatively gloomy, but prices were relatively gloomy or worse, then of course, you know, it's in the price and you should probably be a buyer. And when you mentioned the reasons you were interested in energy or you were positive on energy, you mentioned one immediate issue, the windfall taxes and a longer issue, which is the commitment to net zero and climate change and ESG and all that sort of thing, which is uh, restricting supply. You didn't mention Ukraine or the war. That must also be on your list of things you're watching, or is it actually... Well, yes, yes, of course. In fact, we had, we had an interesting debate about this this morning. I will not name and shame the investment bank whose report was referenced, but they were making the case for buying European equities, as many people are. You know, It's very interesting to me how outperformance of the rest of the world over the US seems to have become a, a consensus trade very quickly in the last couple of months. Long overdue, in my mind, but but interesting how fast that's happened. But anyway, 10 reasons to buy Europe was the sort of rough title of the report. And uh, Putin and Russia were not mentioned anywhere in the document. <laughs> so the debate was, to what extent is the market factoring the ongoing war in? And um, there were a range of views. I mean, my view is, of, of course, it's a risk. But um, I still do believe that market participants are pretty focused on what he might do. And it's a potential for a lot of very negative left tail events from that. But it is interesting that commodity prices are now lower than before the invasion. So that would suggest the market is relatively sanguine about the risks and the risks are very real. That's one of the reasons why I think oil is such a 
good portfolio asset at the moment because some of the worst case scenarios for the global economy will be because the war intensifies, which you would imagine will result in higher oil prices. And then on the other hand, some of the best case scenarios for the global economy, China reopening, global GDP gets going again, should be pretty positive for the oil price. So I I think you've got this great double-headed investment there. Which then brings us on to the dollar and the US. I mean, you mentioned the US equity market has become a, by far the biggest component of the world index uh, as a result of being so strong for so long, dominated as it is or has been by the big tech companies in particular. But that all seems to be going into reverse. We've seen the dollar going down. We've seen big tech sell off in a big way. How much does the dollar and matters US, as it were, feature in your thinking? And is that one of the sort of drivers of your asset allocation? And if so, you know, have you changed your view and, and how do you express that? Well, there's lots to talk about in there. So we have to put our hands up and say we got the dollar wrong last year. So our performance would have been much, much better had we had a big dollar weighting, as most portfolios do. We um, naively chose the yen as our defensive currency for last year. And as you know, the dollar was very strong and the yen was very weak. So we got that wrong. Um, We're actually still positioned that way today. I think from the current starting point, the yen is very interesting. The dollar was very strong. Famous last words, but it does appear to have peaked. The Fed has been much, much tighter on monetary policy than the rest of the world. And perhaps the differential there will narrow from, from the current starting point. So dollar down should be pretty good for commodities, for the rest of the world, for emerging markets, and so on. You mentioned the weighting in in global indexes. I had this discussion uh, last week with with somebody. I think the US is more than 60% or almost 65% of MSCI world now. Now, if you'd asked me before I was told that fact, I would have guessed it was in the mid-50s. And that seems egregiously high. Because I think if you think the US economy is $25, $26 trillion dollars, Global GDP is probably $100, $105 trillion. So it should be a quarter of global indexes GDP weighted. So it shows the level there of potential overvaluation with the uh, US companies. And then one of my favorite charts in our our deck at the moment is uh, stolen from GavCal, which shows the biggest 10 companies in the world by market capitalization at the end of each decade. So at the end of the 70s, the top 10 companies in the world are dominated by US oil majors. At the end of the 80s, it was uh, Japanese companies, particularly Japanese banks. At the end of the 90s, it was the dot-com bubble, so it was US tech. At the end of the 2010s, it was BRICS, Albert Edwards' uh, bloody ridiculous investment concept, or Brazil, Russia, India, China. And then a year or so ago, it was US tech exceptionalism again, but this time, FANG, Microsoft, NVIDIA, and then plus a little bit of Tencent and Alibaba. Now, the lesson from that chart is that these things move in cycles. And the only companies that have really managed to hang in the list for an extended period of time are Exxon and Microsoft. So if you fast forward to the end of this decade, I think that tells you it's pretty unlikely that Fang and Microsoft and so on will still be the dominant narrative of markets. And so you have to start thinking about what else it might be. Now, we think resources are probably going to have a part to play in the future, or perhaps it will be some of the bigger industrial companies of the emerging markets in Europe. But that idea that US companies, and particularly just one sector via tech, dominate the indexes 
I think, is unlikely to continue. Or indeed, they could be disrupted by competitors from within their own industry. You know, things like chat GPT look to be pretty revolutionary. So you know, we'll, we'll see. But from meetings that I've done so far this year, the bullishness of China reopening and the waiting for a moment to buy back into Fang seem like the two most prevalent themes. And uh, I wish it was my line, but it was Louis Gav from GavCal said that waiting to buy sort of meta and Google today is a little bit like sitting in Tokyo in 1991, waiting for the BOJ to cut rates so you can buy the Bank of Kyoto. <laughs> you're missing the big picture if that's what you're trying to do. Yes, of course, it is worth remembering that the Japanese stock market was also a similar proportion of global equity market capitalization back at the end of the 80s. Yeah, which was an even more ludicrously sized bubble, but similarly directionally incorrect as I think the US size is today. It would be astonishing if it carried on being another decade for the US equity market uh, dominating even more than it does now. I think that would be flying in the face of all historical experience anyway. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk just a little bit then about the investment trust and where it sits within the rougher business. You've issued an awful lot of stock in the last year. You've grown the size of the trust significantly. I have to say, of course, I hope that's not because you're in the business of asset gathering rather than delivering returns to shareholders. But uh, most of these things that you do there's no real capacity constraints, are there? Or are there? I mean, we found out there were capacity constraints on gilts and things for a while. But uh, <laughs> in terms of these uh, derivatives and so on, is there uh, a limit to how much you could use that? I mean, how big could you grow this trust before you had issues of that kind? Yeah, so the whole of the rougher business is doing the one rougher strategy. So that's the numbers that's more important, I think. So rougher investment company, the trust grew from 700 million a year ago to 1.1 billion today. So some of that performance, but yeah, you're absolutely right, a significant amount of, of issuance over the last couple of years. And that's good because it means we get to divide the fixed costs over a higher number of shares. The OCF, the ongoing charges figure, or the total expenses ratio, these things have come down. The issuance is also accretive to existing shareholders. So everyone is a winner as we grow the trust until you run into sort of size constraints on the strategy. Um, I think we're a long way from that. So the, the overall rougher strategy, we as a firm managed £26 billion. We have said that we could get to 40. And we've said that for a long time. We said that when we were 20 and not growing. <laughs> and we're saying it again today when we're 26 and we are growing. So we are lucky that what we do is global it's multi-asset, so we're very diversified. We're investing in some of the most liquid markets in the world. This is not a sort of UK smaller mid-cap stock picking strategy, which would, of course, be much, much more size constrained. So we're very lucky in that regard. We also often find multiple ways to express the same view. Like I talked about with energy stocks versus the exchange-traded commodity, that helps liquidity. And then maybe the last part I would say is that much of our performance over the years has come from not owning things. So not owning any dot-com stocks in 2000, not owning banks, financials or commodities in 2007, not owning any government bonds or profitless tech last year. And of course, you can not own things in unlimited size. So I don't worry about that yet. And it would be a great problem to have, but I think it's a long way off. Well, as you alluded to there, I mean, there was a period, a couple of years, when you didn't make a positive return. 
or it went sideways essentially or down a little bit I think in one year and that could happen again presumably I mean you're not uh, claiming to be able to produce 8% in oh, every single market yes, yes absolutely no promises yes so we did we had a couple of tough years 2017 we were flat um, just around zero and 2018 was the worst year in our history so we've been going since 1994 we have never had a losing calendar year until 2018 when we were down 6% so yeah, that was tough. It caused an awful lot of introspection. We failed to meet our investment objectives. We had to apologize to our clients for those failings. What is helpful now is a return of normal interest rates. So that whole decade post-financial crisis, you had a 0% interest rate. And then on top of that, we thought it was necessary to pay money for protection you know, via our unconventional protection. So, so we were like an insurance policy, we were paying out premiums to buy these options. And often, especially in 2017 and 2018, they were expiring worthless because markets were uh, relatively robust. So today, you can get sort of 4% in short-dated government bonds and in cash. So cash has a positive carry, which really just helps ease the portfolio into positive numbers and gives you a little bit more wiggle room to fund the option protection without necessarily losing money. Now, of course, it's absolutely possible that we miscalibrate the portfolio and lose money. But um, at the current moment, we don't have a huge amount of risk on. So touch wood, that's uh, not going to happen. But definitely Jonathan Ruffer has a particularly sort of pessimistic view over the long term. If you think about periods 1966 to 1982, stock markets went nowhere. <laughs> they were flat over a very long time. And then you lost a lot of money in after inflation terms. So I think that's the big risk in the coming years or decades is how do you maintain your real purchasing power, even if the nominal number might be going up. Indeed. And that was the point I was going to come on to, which is that even making positive absolute returns is very creditable, particularly in the current environment or last year's environment. But if inflation is going to stay higher than it has been, say around three, four, five percent, then you're going to have to work particularly hard in to, to get numbers that actually beat that. Yeah. These things are all relative to some degree. You know, so everyone's pension is invested in something. And if everyone's pension is invested in the 60-40 and it goes down and you were invested in rougher and it went up last year, then even if you've lost money in real terms, if we say that inflation was 10% last year, rougher's plus eight was not sufficient for you to earn a real return, but you are better off relatively versus everyone else in the village. So um, it can become quite sort of meta, <laughs> these conversations, but I, I do think that the preservation of capital in nominal and real terms, or as close as you can get to it, is a sufficient and noble objective for the coming years. Because even though markets are down quite significantly and people have felt a lot of pain, in our assessment, there's still potentially quite a bit of pain to come still. Yes. And it's interesting, just finishing on the note of the 1970s, I mean, that period that Jonathan Ruffer referred to, when I started writing about the financial markets, which was in the early 80s, that was all people would talk about. They would talk about the fact that we'd had 16 years when the US stock market stayed at the same level. But of course, within that, there were tremendous fluctuations. I mean, 1975, for example, was, I think, the best year the UK stock market's ever had, because it came immediately after the very low point of December 1974. So volatility is maybe part of that. If, if the world goes the way you say, then you do need to have some kind of strategy for dealing with volatility as well. Yeah, and I think also this comes back to maybe a good point to end on. We, we very much believe that the coming decade will be one for active managers, uh, whereas the previous decades 
it's been pretty good to be a passive manager. Uh, we could have all just bought the 60-40 portfolio from Vanguard and gone to the beach and, and had pretty good results. As you say, within the that period in the uh, 60s and 70s where markets did nothing, there was huge potential in terms of trading trading rallies, actively managing the portfolio, and also massive dispersion within that. So that was the period where value investors made their reputation. So value stocks actually did very well during those periods. The Nifty 50, that sort of concept, not that dissimilar to the quality growth and fang bubble that we've just seen. Uh, the Nifty 50s did all the derating for the index. So absolutely, you know, this coming decade is going to be very difficult, but it's also going to be one where I think good managers generate really significant outperformance versus bad managers or passive. Well, let's hope that's the case for the uh, active fund managers anyway. Well, let's hope it applies to rougher. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's hope so. If you can carry on grinding out uh, 8% per annum oil, which I think is what you've done over the time since the Investment Trust was launched without much volatility, that would be a, a good result. I mean, it's an interesting point you make that you've achieved the same return as the UK stock market over that time, which is a long period in stock market history, but with less volatility, which is... Uh, uh, which yeah, I guess so it's is a rougher investment company, sort of eight percent per annum after fees, which is slightly ahead of the UK stock market since two thousand four. Rougher itself has been going since nineteen ninety four and is more like nine percent per annum after fees, but is well ahead of the stock market because it includes the dot com bubble where the market went up and then halved. Yeah, avoiding the big losses is uh, does wonders for your compounding return. It certainly does. So on that note, uh, Duncan, thank you so much for joining us again on the Moneymakers podcast. It's always good to talk to you. And uh, we'll all be watching very closely how you and the markets uh, perform over the coming 11 months. And let's hope it's as good for year for you as it has been uh, last year. Thank you very much, Jonathan. Thanks. Thank you for listening. The Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast is independently produced and edited and is listed on all leading podcast channels. You can also sign up at the website money-makers.co to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Please note these podcasts are provided for educational purposes only and nothing you have heard from any of the speakers should be regarded as constituting investment advice. If you want more news, analysis, interviews and other investment trust content, don't forget to look at the Moneymakers Circle, available now for a modest subscription at the website.